Welcome to the Cartoonist Kayfabe Courtroom. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. We're going to continue the Marv Wolfman testimony in the case of who the fuck owns the Blade Vampire Slayer character. I think I called him Blade the Immortal far too much in our last video, Jimmy, and the Kayfabers were certain to... Uh, to let us know that that fault, but uh, hey, Fabe brain trust out there, <laughs> a bunch of smart marks in the room. What do we call this video? Does the Wolfman own the Vampire Hunter? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know what I always think of with Marv Wolfman is uh, the comics code. I think at some point you couldn't have like Wolfman as is whatever, and it was like that's the dude's name. Like he was banned from the comics code. Is that a kayfabe name? Like that's too good of a fucking name to have, man. It couldn't be any better if you're going to write Tomb of Dracula. <laughs> well, it could be uh, more of Dracula. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. You know, you know what, Jimmy? After after we did the uh, the initial discussion with Marv Wolfman, I uh, loaded up my iPad with all the Tomb of Draculas, and I've been going through a couple of night, man. I just got to the Marv Wolfman issues. It begins with like uh, Jerry Conway or somebody. Archie Goodwin does a cup of coffee for two issues. Gardner Fox does a cup, a cup of coffee for two issues. And uh, I'm just at the Marv Wolfman part of the puzzle, issue five, six, seven, something like that, man. Uh, and I can't wait. Gene Colan, that motherfucker was inspired, dude, while he was making these comics, man. Uh, it's It's insane, the level of craft and ability and mood. He's able to set, and also, you probably ran into this a couple of times, man, with Hulk Grand Design, uh, the challenge of the bat, uh, the bat transformation, and like the cliches that um, sort of you need to have in a Dracula comic. He has a million different angles for that kind of stuff, dude. And this is approaching. I don't think we're quite at the era of. Uh, the Jim Shooter, every issue, somebody's first issue kind of era. But I have to imagine that when we get to that era, you got to have one bat transformation. You got to show a cross every now and then. You know, you got to do some things. And, and there's probably enough people that get turned to vampires that you just never want to go to Transylvania ever again. <laughs> I swear that uh, Gene Colan's underrated. I know he's respected, you know, Hall of Fame kind of talent. But whenever I'd go down like any Gene Colan rabbit hole, I was always more impressed than when I started. And I think of him in comparison to a Jack Kirby because he does very similar stuff. It looks totally different. You know, the way he foreshortens, the way he creates motion, it's unique to Gene Colan, but it's all those same things of like, what do you need to do to do a great superhero comic? And he has all that. And then whenever you go to Tomb of Dracula, you add the atmosphere part, which he might be better than Kirby at that stuff, you know, in, in terms of creating the shadowy atmosphere, which you hear inkers struggle to figure out how to interpret those those rich pencils um man i remember i think the first time i ever hung out with steve Bissett, we were talking about kind of like backgrounds and he was saying whenever he was in like high school maybe collecting all those tomb of draculas as like you know proto proto graphic novel and uh you know presenting them in an english class as we try to pass off comics for various writing assignments or whatever that tomb of dracula was one of those uh books that he would he would hold up as like there's something here it's a complete um, you know, piece. It's a complete yeah. piece, man. Like, you know, I skipped ahead real quick just to see if I get a full meal. I want to take a look at issue 70 or whatever and see, you know, does this thing resolve? Does it wrap up in some way? It looks like it does. Uh, and I'm having a thoroughly uh, good time 
going through this stuff. Can't wait to really like chomp into the more Wolfman stuff, no pun intended, uh, because I think he must have uh, has good bit of inspiration as well while he was uh, while he was working on those comics, man. Uh, but before we get into the testimony, you could check uh, part one in the link in the in the description directly below this video. But I do want to invite the kayfabe audience to uh, subscribe, like, follow, comment, and share these videos uh, because it helps. It helps goose the algorithm. It helps uh, spread the word. Uh, the kayfabe effect is real. So the stuff that we talk about uh, flies off the shelf after we speak about it. And the people who, who are subscribed and notified get first dibs on uh, the comics that we're talking about. And uh, a consequence of watching the video to the end helps push uh, the video out to users on YouTube who are comic book fans who might not have been aware of the cartoonist kayfabe channel and that just helps us grow in our numbers in a in a big giant way and uh, we've been uh, experiencing exponential growth uh, these past uh, bunch of months and guess what I'm addicted to it I want to keep those numbers flying man um, so Jimmy without further ado the I, the way that we play this game this round with this Marv Wolfman testimony and once again this is testimony in in a court of law in front of a jury of the peers and I do see a couple pages from now, we do get some cross-examination. But uh, Jimmy is playing the role of all the legal experts, man. The lawyers uh, back and forth, the defense lawyers, the uh, prosecuting attorneys, and also the judge has to chime in every now and then with an over overruled or sustained and all that kind of stuff. I'll be the Marv Wolfman character. And uh, Jimmy, if you don't have... Anything else to add? We could just get busy, man. We left off uh, with uh, talk about the Blade character. Yeah, I will add one piece, and that is to go back and watch the first section if you haven't yet, because I was shocked by Wolfman's attention to detail in terms of copywriting and creating some of these characters. And we hear about how this is a heartbreaking case. And, uh, you know, it, it, that's going to unfold. But but that groundwork of like what he was doing before he ever entered the professional field of comics, you know, making his own comics. I love that stuff. And uh, Wolfman was was making books, man, you know, on his own before he ever got the OK from everyone else. And just his background, he came through all those publishers of the 70s, the Warrens, the D.C., um, it's quite a resume. So that's that's a lot of what we cover in that first piece. And before we even get to it, this is uh transcription from uh, comics journal 236 you know we received uh copies from the kayfabe audience and got to thank them for these copies and uh the the testimony here is very long and required two parts uh within comics journals and uh graham miller sent us copies of uh 239 so that we could get the the final piece of the testimony plus we can unpack the kind of um the wrap-up that Marv Wolfman does specifically with the comics journal so that we can get, we could get sort of his thoughts in the, in the aftermath of it. Uh, and it has some juicy, juicy stuff in there. Uh, one of the pieces I saw just like in the quick little sidebar was uh, something like Wolfman saying that he holds no animosity to Marvel because they did what they, what they uh, had to do, but he does have bad feelings for John Burnt who, who, didn't have to do what he did and um we might be getting it well we did the john Byrne testimony uh in a previous video and you could um you know make your make your uh opinions based on that 
but uh, there will be some John Byrne talk uh, in these testimonies at, at some point, maybe this round, maybe uh, 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 next video. All right. Ready to begin? Let's do it. All right. This is uh, Diliberto, the, the lawyer. Now, I'd like you to describe your creation of those two characters, Blade and Deacon Frost, in early 1972. Blade is the result in many ways of everything that I had been doing that had been leading up to this time period. I really did resent, as I mentioned, the idea that we couldn't publish, we couldn't do this black superhero in the Teen Titans. That really bothered me an awful lot. One of my early jobs, uh, this may not be totally related, but one of my early jobs was fi fixing time locks, which is unimportant. But I was sent to fix the time locks in Harlem the day after the riots. And I saw all these people there in terror, and I wanted to do something. I mean, I grew up in the city. I went to school in Midtown Manhattan. And maybe being the young liberal kid or whatever, I really wanted to do something. I was horrified by it. And when DC turned down the Teen Titans story, I'd wanted to do another black hero. In the meantime, I was doing a lot of horror stuff. I had started doing uh, horror stuff. I was a big fan of it. That Night Stalker story that you pointed out before was about a vampire hunter. It was about a monster hunter. And as I say, the primary thing he was fighting or hunting down in that particular story was a vampire. Things coalesce in your brain when you're a writer and suddenly everything sort of came together, the time period. There was a lot of racial strife at that time. I wanted realistic material which is what we tried to do with the original Joshua character. In fact, that's uh, what they wanted even. It all came together, and I came up with the very concept of Blade at that point, every part of it. It was one of those two times in my life that the character was absolutely crystal clear in my head. I knew what he looked like. I knew his origin. I knew the story. I knew what he was going to do. I had sort of like, as I say, instantly, the entire novel of this character and this only happened one other time I wish it would happen more and that's sort of how it came together and Deacon Frost had to be the character who Blade was hunting because the concept of Blade was that his mother was a black woman giving birth a vampire attacked her while just prior just as she was giving birth the blood mixed with her and created this baby that was half man half vampire the guy who the person who was pretending to be the doctor, the vampire character, who killed her was Deacon Frost, and Blade's mission from day one was to find Deacon Frost, the person who had killed his mother, and turned him into this sort of thing that he became. Did you write down anything in early 1972 regarding these two characters? I wrote down primarily what I've just told you. The look of the character, he was black, goggled, because of being half vampire, he couldn't walk out in daylight in the sun. So that was to keep down the sun glare uh, and the sunlight in his eyes. He could take it off uh, when he's indoors. The type of bombardier uh, jacket he was wearing, a bandolier across his chest, the wooden knives. Since I had the name Blade, I didn't want to do the old-fashioned silly wooden stake things. I was trying to come up with something far more modern than that uh, and came up with the idea of wooden knives, the flared pants, the boots... I described the mission. Uh, that's about it. So did you write down those characteristics? Yes, yes. And did you write down the origin as you described it earlier? Well, that is the origin. You can't do Blade without explain, explaining who, who he is because the concept of Blade 
and his entire life was based on the fact that his mother was killed by a vampire and he's turned into this sort of double-edged creature. What you wrote down at that time, would you consider that a story? It's a story of his origin. It's not a story like the Janus, uh, where it's page panel, but it's the story of his origin. Would you call that an origin story? Yes, yes. How long do you think that origin story was in length? It's hard for me to remember exactly how long it was, but I would have to assume it was about a page, page and a half maximum, because it was just the details of everything. I wasn't writing dialogue. I wasn't writing full complex plot. As I say, uh, when you do something like this, which is the Janus script, uh, you know, all that descriptions are there, et cetera, et cetera. So it wasn't that, no. I didn't do that type of story. I just did the type of thing that I would uh, put on my side, on the side of my desk, and then when I started typing, that would be my notes for what my character and everything else was. Uh, but yes. Do you commonly write origin stories for characters that you develop? Oh, you have to have the origin of the character. You have to know, I'd say, on at least 85% of the characters you do, what their purpose is, if they're going to be any good. There's no way on a character like Blade or Janus or something else that you could come up with a story and not know what the origin is because that's what motivates the character. The motivation is inside the character. He was hunting the, the killer of his mother. So yes, you had to do that. They're not separated, separatable. Uh, they can't be separated. You said you were freelancing at Warren during the creation of Blade in early 1972? Yes, and also doing some work at DC and maybe some stuff at Skywald. Were you influenced by any work you were doing at DC or Skywald or Warren at the time of the creation of these characters? No, this is really going back again uh, to the original Joshua concept of my, my attitude of writing street stuff. I was trying to be a little bit more realistic than comic books seemed to be at that time. Did you come up with the names Blade and Deacon Frost as well in the early in early 1972? Yes, of course. Do you discuss your characters with other people generally? No, I try to avoid that at all costs. And why is that? I had read many issues of Writer's Digest and lots of other things as I was starting, and my attitude has always been, and what other writers have mentioned to me, is the more you talk about your characters, the more you talk about your stories, the less you're actually writing. And also people tend to bug you, you know, well, why didn't you try this instead? Why don't you do that? And if you are at all focused, and certainly when you're at that age, you are, that's the way you're thinking. And you don't want to hear a lot of other opinions. I tended to say, no, I don't want, I don't want to. If I talk about my characters, I will probably never do it. I will probably never do it that way. I don't want to hear your opinion about my character. I just want to do what I want to do. Now, there came a point in time when you began working with Marvel. Is that correct? Yes, late 72. Now, was your first work freelancing at Marvel in connection with the Tomb of Dracula comic book? Not the very first stuff that I had done. I had done, I think, three stories prior. Maybe one in 70, maybe the other two just in 72. Yes. And who did you speak with regarding freelancing at Tomb of Dracula? Roy Thomas. He was the editor of the company at the time. And yeah, I think he was the writer of those, those early issues. And how did it come to pass that you began freelancing at Marvel in connection with Tomb of Dracula? Roy knew I liked horror stories. He had certainly known my fanzines. He knew I was editing at Warren. He knew I had written tons of stories for DC horror books. 
He knew I had written for Skyworld. He had me write even earlier A Tower of Shadows, which is one of those books I mention, which is one of Marvel's mystery books, which is what they called the horror books before they could use the word horror. He was familiar with my work in that genre, and that's what he wanted me to do. He asked me if I'd be interested in working on it. Now, did he mention that the Tomb of Dracula comic book had had problems in the past at that time? Well, he told me that because the book had not come out yet, that there were three ish that there were three writers and six issues, and the first two were written by Jerry Conway, the second two written by Archie Goodwin, and the third two were written by Gardner Fox. Uh, they weren't doing the book, I guess, the way Roy wanted to. I don't know. Whatever conjecture. I guess Jerry Conway did write the first. <laughs> <laughs> Now, did Roy Thomas, at the time of asking you to work with the Tomb of Dracula book, did he mention anything about ownership rights to stories or characters for that comic book? No, Roy never mentioned anything. Did he ask you to create any new characters for that comic book? No, Roy never mentioned anything on the previous books that I had written at Marvel either. Did Roy ever tell you that Marvel would own stories or characters that you submitted for publication? No. Did he mention the phrase work for hire? No. As I say, that phrase didn't even exist back then. So what was the first issue of Tomb of Dracula that you began working with? Issue 7. Now, did there come a point in time at which you decided to use some original characters that you had created into the Tomb of Dracula comic book? Well, I used... I had come up with Quincy Harker with my first story, and there were some, you know, minor things. And then with issue 10, I decided to put Blade in there. I'd like to mark for identification exhibits 514 and 515. Would you identify exhibit 514? This is the first appearance of Blade in a Marvel comic. And where does Blade appear in that comic? On the cover, and then he's sporadically in and out of the story. Now looking at the cover page of exhibit 514, is the depiction of the character shown on that cover page the same as you would describe what you had written down your origin story? It's exactly the same, and just a little conjecture, Jimmy. Uh, when you see Blade in those old comics, do you also have the idea of like 90s Midnight Suns Blade in your mind and feel a little disappointed when you see him with that like processed hair, those crazy goggles and like um, bell bottoms? What I'm saying is I really like uh, the, the 90s uh, Blade look and it was a shock uh, when I saw the kind of corny old old version. You know what, man? I found that stuff when I was going through like black exploitation movies. You know, I found the Tomb of Dracula, like the original stuff was about the time they released in Essentials, which is where I first saw it. So like, that's where my head was. I might have been working on Aphrodisiac even at the time. So I had no complaints about that 70s version, especially whenever you sprinkle the, the Gene Colan magic on top of it. Yeah, I was all right with that. And I, I don't remember the 90s version too well. I think I was kind of checked out at that point. I was a mark for that stuff, man. I was a real mark for that stuff. Like all these names I associate with like Night Stalkers. Do you remember Night Stalkers? Yes. <clears throat> yeah, that's all funny stuff because it's almost like Ghost Rider was a surprise hit. And then you get all the Midnight Sun Suns family of books spinning out of it. Just all those things that were tired and forgotten about for about 15 years. All right. Back to it. Yes. When did Deacon Frost first appear? Issue 13, which is, I guess, Exhibit 515, and the origin of Blade is in that issue. When you wrote these stories in late 1972, were you working out of your home at that time? Yes. Were you using your own materials? Absolutely. Did Marvel reimburse you for those materials? No. 
Did you go into the Marvel offices at all during that time period? I may have gone in occasionally, but I was working at Marvel three days. I was working at Warren three days a week. I don't know if I would have bothered to spend a lot of time because that would have meant coming in another day and that takes up writing time, but I may have. I'm sure I did. Just another quick conjecture piece. When I talk about like the materials and stuff, th that's often the argument that's brought up in the, like the work for hire um, complaints and things. So as a kid, when you saw that Marvel blue line paper and you were like, man, that's official. I got to fuck with some of that. I got to go to the Marvel offices, get some of that. Or when they supply you with that stuff, that's now their argument that like they, they supplied you with the stationery to make their comics. Continue. So you wrote these stories at your own home then? Oh, yes. When Roy spoke to you about the Tomb of Dracula comic book, did he ask you to create a black vampire hunter? Roy didn't ask me to create anything. Roy was barely there at the time. Roy was going through a separation and divorce that lingered a long time, then coming back together, and then finally the, the final divorce. And Roy was trying to patch up his life at the time. Was he in the office very much? No, not an awful lot. Was he ever supervising any of your work at the time as editor? No. Roy was barely there. He knew that I could handle this. Uh, there wasn't any worry. Do you know if he actually looked at your stories before publication? Not before publication, unless somehow the artwork... He was, he was in when the artwork was coming in and out. I would tend to send the material out myself to the illustrator, and the next thing that would happen would be the next time I would uh, really be at the Marvel offices... Uh, was when it was being proofread and corrected. Cartoonist Kayfabe is sponsored by us and the comics that we make. So please support our latest comics, the best way to support this channel, starting with my next book, Hulk Grand Design Monster and Hulk Grand Design Madness. These will be in your stores in March and in April, respectively. These are the main covers here, retelling the history of the Incredible Hulk, uh, 500 plus issues, 10,000 plus pages retold in two oversized issues with some really great variant covers to choose from, including Ed Piscors, Marcos Martin, Peach Momoko, and whenever we get into the Hulk Grand Design Madness, Jeff Darrow, Ed McGinnis. So let your co comic shop know you want these, and uh, it's March, Ed. These are going to be out in stores any minute now, so start picking those up. Speaking of, available now, New season of Red Room by Ed Piscor, Trigger Warnings. Red Room Antisocial Network, The Collection. Both of these are now available in comic shops all over the world. This is the main cover for Trigger Warnings starting the uh, 2022 season of Red Room. Uh, if you like violence and, and depravity, we're about to up the level of that and uh, start looking for Red Room Trigger Warnings number two. This is the cover to, uh, to seek out. That'll be coming to your local store in April. You can also pick up our back catalog from Ed Piscor, WYSIWYG, Hip Hop, Family Tree, four deluxe oversized volumes available as well as box sets telling the history of hip hop, the book that started the Grand Design Craze, X-Men Grand Design by Ed Piscor, three oversized treasury size edition volumes available telling the complete history of the X-Men. And my books that are still available in print everywhere, books and comics are sold. The Plain Janes, the first young adult graphic novel here in America, and Street Angel, Deadliest Girl Alive. And now back to our regular scheduled programming. Did you, being that you were at home, did you set your own work set schedule as far as writing these stories? I had to, yes. 
when you were at Marvel, were you a part of a group of writers that was given total freedom regarding their stories? Fleischer, objection leading, Petrich. It's vague and ambiguous, your honor. The court sustained. Why don't you ask him again? Ask him, well, ask him something that he knows of from his own knowledge. Back to Diliberto. When you were writing stories starting with the late 1972 for the Tomb of Dracula comic book, did you edit your own work? Before I was officially editor, before I was officially editing my work, I was de facto editing my work. It was sort of the policy at Marvel that the writers controlled their own material. They talked about that all the time. And then later, I was officially editing my work by the way Marvel worked back then. And again, this is something that was widely publicized, publicized was the writers were in charge of their own work. Now, you mentioned that you sent the stories to the illustrator. Who was the illustrator? Gene Cullen. Eugene Cullen. Did you instruct Gene in any way how to draw the Blade and Deacon Frost characters? Well, I described Blade in a lot of detail, pretty much what I told you previously. As I say, he was, I know it may sound strange, but he was one of those two characters that I did know that well and didn't want any changes on. Deacon Frost, I had described less tightly. I said he was an older man, bearded, trench coat, something like that, but Blade was in absolute detail. Where was Gene working when you would send him the stories for Tomb of Dracula? New Jersey. Did you meet with him at the Marvel offices to discuss your stories? Not that early on. I didn't know Gene outside, you know. I get a phone call asking me to explain everything. Gene, every single month, I think uh, of Tomb of Dracula, he'd call me and say, what's a pentagram? Uh, because they were in there forever. Gene would call, exact, call for exactly what I had wanted. Uh, this was the way Gene works. He wants to know what I was explaining. If it wasn't at all clear, and sometimes when it was clear, he would ask that too. What did you explain to Gene about the characters Blade and Deacon Frost? Didn't explain a lot, but I explained that, again, most of this was in the original stuff that I had written down. Did you send him a script? Well, I sent him a very long plot. I tended to write incredibly long plots, and Gene, who likes three-panel three panels a page, calls always and grumbles about the fact that my stuff has five, seven, eight panels a page. Uh, this was the description of Blade in the first story of Blade. And the description I mentioned before was in there. And pretty much later description of Deacon Frost was in thir number 13. I didn't have to describe Blade again. So to your knowledge, did Gene simply follow your instructions as to how the Blade and Deacon Frost characters would look? It was exactly what I called for. Does Gene Cullen know when you created Blade and Deacon Frost? Fleischer, objection, court, overruled. You can cross him on it. He couldn't. Uh, there would be no reason to tell him. I was always coming up with characters, taking my old stuff, putting them in. I would just write the story. To satisfy Mr. Fleischer's objection, did you tell Gene Cullen when you created the Blade and Deacon Frost characters? No. Did he ask you when you created them? He didn't care as long as he understood what to draw. So would it be fair to say that he only knew what you showed him when you showed him? Unless he's telepathic. We didn't talk uh, about that sort of stuff back then. Gene and I really don't know each other, really didn't know each other until several years later. I mean, we talked all the time, but we weren't friends. Gene is much older than I am, and I was a kid. After you sent your detailed script to Gene with the description of the characters and origin of these characters, did he phone you and ask questions about how they would look? It was funny with Gene. You'd always get a phone call, and then three minutes later, after you hung up, 
you could be on the phone for three hours with him explaining everything. Three minutes later, he called back. Uh, it happened even more recently on something else where I did it and hung up and my wife said, let's do something. I said, wait. And within five minutes, he called back. I have one more question. What about this? Gene would call on every single plot. Did Gene have any discretion over the visuals of these characters? On Blade, probably not because it was so tight. Uh, there wasn't much left I didn't describe. Maybe how the eyes look or whatever. Uh, but I described it pretty tightly. I mean, he could have decided that the coat was an inch longer than I was talking about as a bombardier. Uh, you know, long type jacket or whatever. Airplane jacket, but not much. Now, Gene Colan has given a deposition in this case. Are you aware of that? Yes, I am. And are you aware that at his de deposition, he claims that he created Blade when you both were doing the script for Dracula? Well, in Gene's mind, I guess as an artist, he was the first person to draw it. I don't know. So would that be an erroneous statement? Well, he wasn't there when the character was created. I guess, you know, he would have had to be sitting next to me for months before we even worked together. He would have to, to be having... He would have had to have been sitting in my office at home. No, no, he couldn't have. Was Gene Colan aware of your Janus script from the pre-1970s? Absolutely not. Did he draw the Janus character? He drew it in 19, I think, 77, 76. Yes, he did. Uh, he couldn't have known it then. Now for the Tomb of Dracula stories. Were you paid a page rate for those? Yes, I was. I believe it started at $10 a page. What was your understanding of you receiving a page rate for those stories? Fleischer, objection. Petrick, calls for hearsay. Fleischer, in leading. The court overruled. Biliberto, was it your intent to sell your original characters for a $10 page rate to Marvel at that time? Fleischer, objection. Abs no, absolutely not. The court, wait a minute, I want to hear the objection. Best evidence, hearsay, speculation? Fleischer, it's leading him, it's Petrich. I'd like to object on the grounds of relevancy. This is his secret intent. The court, you're going to transfer that objection to Mr. Fleischer, you want to object? Fleischer, it's also the ultimate issue, your honor. The court, so why not hear his testimony on it? Fleischer, well, I guess we're going to hear it. The court, okay, overruled. Why would I? Uh, again, with my fanzines, you know, the individual people kept their characters. Why would I be giving Marvel something for nothing? I mean, if they wanted to buy the characters, they could have asked for them like they did, you know, license them the way they did Kirb Kirby or Simon or any of the other creators back then. Kayfabe conjecture, like, doesn't this feel weird? Like, you already have history with Kirby and and... Siegel and Schuster like went through court cases with Superboy, like all this kind of stuff. This feels kayfabe-ish, man. It's very confusing. There's probably a little bit of kayfabe-ish. I really think that copyright law in the late 70s is, is probably why they think this should work, you know, because it just wasn't defined the way it is now. <laughs> and I'm... something in 72, you know, was, was way outside of that copyright law. <laughs> I'm thinking of another... Uh interpretation of the law that would be relevant to blade and that's uh wesley snipes and how every couple of years there are these people who interpret tax law a certain way and then they look at it and say oh you know what i don't have to pay taxes 
right. uh, be- because uh, the the way the law is right here, like I'm good, I don't have to pay taxes, and then they, you know, they 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 find out the hard way. So uh, maybe it's a curse of Blade. Maybe it's the curse of the vampire hunter that that you start <laughs> to interpret laws in ways that work for you, but not uh, the people who built the business that that you're that you're working for. Continue, yeah, Jim. man. That that could be the curse of comic books, Ed, <laughs> not just Blade. <laughs> Was it your understanding that the page rate was just the right to publish your stories in their comic books? In their comic books, yes. Was your understanding based on your experience in the industry at that point? Well, I had come from DC, uh, which told me that the rights, what the rights were up front. Actually, I started with Castle of Frankenstein and felt from day one uh, that was mine and published another story. I felt that with certainly Skywald and Warren, DC was the only one at the time period to make the claim towards stuff. They told me what the rights were. I made a decision at that point. I really didn't create anything on my own for them. Marvel didn't say anything. I figured it was pretty much like I was at the other places. And no, I was not about to sell characters for $10. I mean, that's ridiculous. So did anybody at Marvel ever ask you to create original characters for their comic books? No. So you were hired to write stories. We were paid by the page to fill up the books with good stories. If I didn't create a character, it would be $10 a page. If I decided to create a character, it would be $10 a page. The $10 was not about buying characters. It was about producing a story for them to publish. Are you aware of other writers that worked with Marvel who spent their careers working on pre-existing characters as opposed to creating new characters? Yes, pretty much. Can you give a name of one that we might know of? He's actually in the room. John Byrne created, uh, who has been a very successful artist for 25 years or more, has barely created any characters. He's primarily worked on Stan Lee characters and Jack Kirby characters. He's created a few, but not many. So is he known pretty much for just revamping pre-existing characters that he does not own? Wolfman Wolfman agrees. agrees. (laughs) Now, so you allowed Marvel to use your original characters in its comic books. Is that right? Wolfman agrees again. As well as the trademarks such as Blade and Deacon Frost. I don't know what you mean by the trademarks. Well, the names of the characters. Okay, because they weren't trademarked. I allowed them to use it, yes. Now, is it your understanding that they could only use your characters and names or trademarks, as the lawyers call them, in comic books, but no other medium? Fleischer. Objection, Your Honor. There has been no testimony that there was ever a discussion about this, so all of this is internal understanding. If there was an expressed conversation between the parties, then let's hear it. But I haven't heard that, so all we're getting is Mr. Wolfman's internal understanding. The court. Why don't you just let him testify to it? You can cross-examine him on it. Marvel was a comic book publisher. It was only for comics. If I wanted to sell something to the movies, I would work with the movie company if I knew how then. I do now. No, I was only giving them the okay to do it in the comic books, of course. That's all they were doing. Did you allow Marvel the right to make any derivative works of your characters or stories? What do you mean by derivative works there? Well, for example, a film based on your characters. No, no. Did you allow Marvel the right to license or produce or exploit your characters and stories in other media? No. Did you grant them the right to renew the copyrights of your stories or characters? No. Did Marvel ever show you any copyright applications that it filed for your characters or stories in which your characters appeared? No. 
Did Marvel ever show you trademark applications for the names of your characters that were published in comic books by Marvel? No. Has anyone from Marvel ever contacted you saying, we'd like to license, for example, Blade for a motion picture produced by New Line? No. Now, did you see copyright notices on the Indicia pages of comic books in which your stories and characters appeared that were published by Marvel? Occasionally, I'd look and see. What was your understanding of what that copyright notice meant? Hold on. I think I'm going to sneeze, but I'm not sure. I guess not. (laughs) That essentially was the same thing that I was doing in my fanzines when I copyrighted them, which was protecting it for everybody who created their characters or their stories or whatever. Did you believe that Marvel was protecting your characters and stories on your behalf by that copyright notice? At that point, I did. Did you alone determine when and how you would use your characters in comic books published by Marvel? Nobody told me what to use. Nobody told me where a character was supposed to be. Nobody told me to bring a character into a book, if that's what you mean by that. It's no. Nobody was instructing me at all. I just, I hate to say I just did what I wanted to do, but that's essentially what it was. Did you take steps to, so to speak, preserve the integrity of your characters like Blade and Deacon Frost? Well, I always stopped anyone from really using them. My characters really, if ever, appeared anywhere else, whereas most of the Marvel characters would appear appear everywhere. That's part of what Marvel did back then. If a character was in one book, they'd appear everywhere else, but my characters, I was uh, real tight on. I told the writers at the time they couldn't use them, and if they came to me and they showed me what they were going to do, that was okay, but sometimes no. Did you allow other writers at any time at Marvel to use your characters, your original characters? A couple of times. They came up with some good ideas, two, three times maybe. You know, maybe one more that I wasn't aware of or something slipped by. But generally, uh, they would come to me as I would to them. How would you describe Marvel in the early 1970s in the way of organization or its process for publishing comic books? Well, I think the idea of organized chaos is probably the best. Uh, Somehow, uh, books got out, but not all the time. It was totally insane. Things were changing every minute. It was chaotic. It was very bad in many ways, which allowed a lot of books to go reprint and stuff like that because there was nobody really dealing with that stuff. Just to jump fast ahead there, when did you leave Marvel as far as freelancing with them? Well, in, I think it's January of 77, I had a writer-editor contract, which expired, I believed, in December 79. And then I was, I left at that point and went to DC and didn't do another Marvel book for over a decade. After you left Marvel, were you aware of any writers using any of your original characters ever published by Marvel? I knew one or two. That was about it. Uh, I wasn't following the Marvel books. First of all, I didn't like the direction most of them were going. I wasn't getting them and I was incredibly busy at DC. Did you complain about the use of any characters after you left? Well, sometime later on, I couldn't tell you the exact year because I don't have the book, so I couldn't even look it up. Uh, They came out with a new Nova book, and I had sent a letter at that time to, I don't know if it was the writer or the editor, because the writer was also an editor at Marvel, so I don't remember exactly which one it was, saying, guys, you know the creator is out here, I should be doing the book. Uh, That was about the only one because Nova was its own title. And did that person at Marvel respond to your letter? Not in the slightest. Have you been able to locate that letter? 
No, uh, that's an old computer from a CPM 86 system. I got rid of that stuff ages ago. Out of the body of characters that you've created, either prior to freelancing at Marvel or during your freelance period at Marvel, how many percent of your characters have been used after you left Marvel without your knowledge or at least without your consent? Well, I only know of a few, like maybe three or four or five at most. As I say, I don't read the Marvel books. For a while, I read Spider-Man, gave up on that one finally. Uh, if I pointed, if it was pointed out to me by someone else, I generally found out. And usually because so many of those cases, the books were canceled almost before I found out about it. So there were a few appearances. Now, were you paid by check at Marvel? Yes. Did any of the checks that you received from Marvel contain a legend on the back of the checks? I don't recall that. I've been trying to struggle with that one for a while. I don't recall it at all. You don't recall a legend with some kind of language saying that by signing this, you're giving up all rights to your firstborn child or whatever the language would have been at the time? No, I saw those at DC. And so I know it would, I know that language. I don't recall it at Marvel. Did you ever receive an artwork release from Marvel? No. Yeah. About, I think 1998, 1999, it was about that time. Uh, it couldn't be, it couldn't be more because I hadn't done anything for them. I would have it would have been about 1978, 79, and I know that because that's when the copyright law changed. And there's this person, Neil Adams, who's been who's like was the biggest. Is he a writer? He's a writer artist. He's primarily an artist. He was like the biggest complainer. I guess that's the best word. Person who really raised a ruckus back then uh, about this sort of material. He screamed to everyone at the time period again, 78, 79. Marvel is doing all this evil stuff. Don't sign this stuff. Don't do it. And that's the only, that's about the only time. Previous to that, uh, the only thing that existed was like a logbook that you'd log out. The, the writers received two pages and you log out which two pages. I don't know if the artists who weren't at the, who picked up their books, I mean, who got their pages milled. Uh, that was probably logged in for them. I just know, you know, I got a page here, the two pages here or there that I'd log it out. But that's it. Uh, as far as you're talking about, that came in late 78, 79. I'd like to discuss some of the other characters listed in your proof of claim. If you'd like to mark for identification, I'd like to mark for identification exhibit 516. If you would turn to that. Just for a brief transition, Your Honor, what I'm going to do is show several Marvel publications and have the witness describe where the characters appear in those publications. Would you identify Exhibit 516 and identify which characters you created that appears in that publication? This is Tomb of Dracula number 22 and Gorna, G-O-R-N-A. Did you create the character Gorna? Yes. Where does Gorna appear in that publication? He's a character in the story. Can you describe that character? Yes, yes, I'm sorry. Could I describe it? Skeletal-like face, because he was he was dead and came back. It's one of, it's a horror story thing. Tunic, that's essentially the description. Skeletal tunic. Okay, I'd like to mark for identification exhibit 517. Would you identify that publication and the character you created that appears in that publication? Hannibal King. Would you describe Hannibal King? Jimmy, wasn't there also an artist named Hannibal King? Man, I almost said the same thing. <laughs> Working for Harris Comics, uh, if memory serves, and 
maybe doing horror comics in the 90s for uh, Harris Comics. He would come to uh, Pittsburgh a lot, too. He had a, a self-published uh, comic. I forget what the name of it was. Um, something like Blackjack or something, maybe. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> back, back to Wolfman. Okay, that one. Vampire Detective, which was, so far as I knew, completely unique at the time. And did you create the story and origin of that character? Oh, yes, yes. I'd like to mark for identification Exhibit 517. Now for this, I'd like to ask you when this was written. Written probably early 1976. Would you refer to control number 378A of that exhibit, the last page of that exhibit, the letters page at the end of the document? Is there anything in there that refers to another Marvel publication? This was mentioning the fact that we were going to do a Blade special in a book that at the time was called Marvel Spotlight and that it was going to center on Blade himself. And it says we just completed the story. And was that story for an issue number 58? Well, what happened was we published it in issue 58. We didn't publish it in Marvel Spotlight. Gene went into the hospital and for whatever, I forgot what it was now. And because Gene had drawn every issue of Tomb of Dracula, and because we had an unbroken record, which was, again, fairly unique for that time period, I wanted to use a story that I wrote that Gene drew. So nobody would really get the impression that the book changed. And I took the story that was originally meant for Marvel Spotlight, this all-blade issue, and put it into 58. So when was the story shown in, fish, in issue 58 written by you? It had to have been written prior to the beginning of 1976. Uh, it would have been written in probably before, in probably 1975. It says here Gene just finished it. I'd like to mark for identification Exhibit 519. I'd like to take this in two portions. Would you identify the first two pages? Yes. This is the cover in the splash page of an issue uh, that Marvel called Blade that they published sometime in the summer of 19, of 97. The splash page and, in fact, the entire story is actually segments from various issues of Tomb of Dracula done 20 years before. And then the last two pages of this exhibit, 519, would you describe those? Yes, this is the last appearance of Deacon Frost. This is what refers to in the beginning when I, if you notice, they have the same title, The Final Glory of Deacon Frost, even though the artwork is completely different. What they did was they took the last appearance of Deacon Frost when I had Blade finally, after a number of years, find the vampire that killed his mother and, sl and slay him. Uh, they took the segments because I did them. I did them in like three, four, five page segments over a number of issues. And the very last one was called uh, The Final Glory of Deacon Frost. And that's the splash page you see here. Then they just took all the segments that led up to it and combined it for to show what the movie was because this was a movie special. This was to get people interested in seeing the movie. They were taking the story I had written over a period of a number of issues and were using it to show what the movie is about. By the splash page, are you referring to the page that has the indicia of... I'm sorry, the first page of a comic. The big picture on the first page of a comic uh, sometimes is page two. It's called a splash page. Now, I'd like to refer you to the control number 547, but the fourth page of this document... Yes, I see 547 right here. This is the final glory. The 97 reissue. Do you see the final glory of Deacon Frost with a small TM? Yes. 
in the many, many years after the story was printed, Marvel put a TM finally. It wasn't on the original book. So was this your first recollection of Marvel claiming a trademark right? For example, Deacon Frost as a trademark? Yes. Had it that had not been done, to your knowledge, in the 1970s? It certainly hadn't, because if it would have been, it would have been on uh, 547, which was the place that they had put it on the same title, which it wasn't. They didn't do it. And did you say that the issue 53 was written in 1976? Yes, it would have been written in 1976. I'd like to mark for identification Exhibit 520. I will have you identify that, Mr. Wolfman. This is Tomb of Dracula 54. Was this your last Blade story? Yes, this is in issue 53. I got rid of the vampire that created him. His story was done uh, at this particular point because I had created, created him completely. I mean, he had nothing to do with Dracula. He was hunting this other character, and at this point, he was done. So he finished his mission and he left. He again, at that particular point, if the villains of the characters were dealing with your main character, it's a strange... I find it hard to do because the main character in this is a villain as opposed to a hero. But when those two usually meet at Marvel, there's a personal antagonism between the two characters. So if Blade had been created uh, to be involved with Dracula, he would have continued on because the book continued on for another year and a half or two, two years. Uh, but he wasn't created with Dracula in mind. He had nothing to do with Dracula. I didn't care about Dracula as far as Blade was concerned. His novel, the story that I originally came up with, was gone. So the issue after he finished pursuing and slaying the vampire Deacon Frost, he's out of the book and doesn't appear again. Now, you stated earlier that, for example, Blade and Deacon Frost were characters that were really independent of, for example, Dracula that appeared in Tomb of Dracula. Could you have used other characters such as Spider-Man or any other characters than your original characters in Tomb of Dracula? I'm not sure I follow. Could you have written Tomb of Dracula without your original characters? Without putting in Blade or, yes, I'm sure for sales, Marvel would have preferred that. Could you have used, for example, like Spider-Man, something Stan Lee created to interact in the series? Yes, I could have. I'd like to mark for identification Exhibit 522. I will have you refer to Control Number 390A. Yes, this is a letter column explaining why there have been no letter columns in the previous issue. Previous three issues, actually. It says, firstly, an apology for not having a letter column these past three issues. First time Marv, who checks up on our letter hacking armadillo was busy helping a certain newcomer to the Wolfman household get adjusted to life. My daughter was born. I had no time to write a letters column. The second time around, uh, which would have been in that issue, we ran over with pages on the blade fill-in, and then it's parentheses, necessitated by Gene Cullen having to enter the hospital for minor surgery. He's fine, thank you. And then the last sentence, so that was referring to 58, and the last sentence is, quote, and last month, uh, referring to issue 59, we were waiting word on the fate of Tomb of Dracula, which is the purpose of this message. So does this also refer to issue number 58 as a fill-in written prior to 1977? Yes. In that earlier issue, I refer to the fact that I was doing a special Blade fill-in uh, meant for Marvel Spotlight, which ran in issue 58. Then in issue 600, I was referring to that. We had a very loyal, incredibly loyal readership on Tomb of Dracula. The sales never varied, and they knew what I was referring to. Uh, 
interjection. I'm betting that 600 is supposed to be a 60 and it's a typo in, in here. Yeah. All right, back to it. I'd like to mark for identification exhibit 523. What characters are you claiming appears on that publication? Skull the Slayer. And he's the character who's on the cover of the book. I'd like to direct your attention to control number 211 of that exhibit, the letters page. Would you read and refer to portions of that letters page that state that? Okay. Quote, it's been four years, four years since I tried selling the concept of Skull the Slayer to someone, anyone, and now at long last, for better or worse, though I think for the better, it's here. And you wanted to know something? It's hard. End quote. Some of those words are a little bit blurred on the left-hand side. Quote, I think it was worth the wait, for in that time it was, it has matured, or I was matured. Uh, some concepts grew, some changed, some fully improved. The basics are still there. The thrust of it remains. Only some of the secondary aspects of the series have been changed, and all for the better. As I said, it began four years ago when I was working as an assistant editor for Marvel's Declining Competition, end quote. That was a joke at the time. We would find ways to insult DC Comics by using their uh, initials capitalized. Uh, so Declining had a capital D, and C for competition. It's so funny because I, I see them often, uh, Marvel people always say distinguished comp competition, and I never think of it as like capital D and C. Uh, whatever way we would try to be funny about the competition, we'd come up with a DC phrase, always putting it in caps so that people knew we were referring to DC. Uh, but what this is indicating was I had tried to sell it to DC Comics. Was this the story that you tried to sell to Joe Orlando at DC Comics in 1971? As I said, it changed a little bit, but all basics are still there. It's the same concept. I see also at that same page under Control 211, you say, quote, well, here it is, four years later, but I hope worth the wait, end quote. Yes. Again, referring to the character Skull the Slayer and the story. Right. It had been, I mean, this essentially is telling the reader that I had created it for another company and then brought it to Marvel. Was it for a company or while you were at the company? I wasn't working for, as a writer, I was working for them as an assistant editor. So, you know, phrasing is hard sometimes. Was this created for DC Comics? I originally created it while I was there. And you tried to sell it to DC Comics? Wolfman agrees. The sell did not go through because you wanted to retain ownership? Wolfman agrees again. Moving on, I'd like to mark Exhibit 524 for identification. I take it this refers to your Nova character. This is Nova, yes. This is the man called Nova. I'd like to refer to control number 190 of this exhibit. There's another letters page here, and I'd like you to read your comment in the letter page and explain what that comment refers to. Quote, to those who care about such things, another paragraph or two about Nova's genesis. Over 10 years ago, when this writer-editor was a poor, humble fanzine publisher... He featured a hero called the star, end quote. That's in quotes. Quote, in his action stories, the star was a rather silly looking super dude who popped alien pills, which gave him a different superpower every hour. Uh, it's, it's a special issue of, in a special issue of the fanzine Super Adventures, lively Len Wein, and don't ask who he is, and I decided to change the star. Len had come up with the name Black Nova and a costume, and I had the story and a new origin. 
Essentially, Nova looks the same as Black Nova did. Uh, instead of three stars, three instead of five stars on his chest. And then he now sports a sunburst on his back. Not to mention the helmet star uh, instead of the antenna. But essentially, he remains. But as I said, he has remained essentially the same in appearance. What I want to ask you is, do you know when this story was written by you that appeared in this publication? This publication story, this would have been probably early 1976, maybe a little bit later in the mid, into mid-76. It's hard to tell. No. Early 76, yes. And the letters page was referring to your Nova character that you had created a decade earlier? Correct. Did you discuss this Nova character with Stan Lee at the time? Well, at the time we were starting a new book and that you had to show Stan the material before a new book could be created. So I essentially bought the fanzine because I wanted him to like what I to like what I looked like. Hold up. I'm going to read that part over. Um, well, at the time we were starting a new book and that you had to show Stan the material before a new book could be created. So I, I essentially bought the fanzine because I wanted him to like what it looked like, told him about it. Uh, he read it. He had gotten my fanzines anyways. I had always sent them to him as I sent them to all the big editors at the time. He liked the look. He liked the idea. He said, okay, go right ahead, do it. So Stan was aware that you had created this character almost a decade earlier before you had begun freelancing at Marvel. Oh, yes, yes. I'd like to mark for identification exhibit 525. I will have you identify the character in the proof of claim that appears in this publication. Hold on. This is Terax. And where does Terax appear in there? He's right on the cover and he's throughout the story. He's the one who looks rocky. He's on the bottom with the big axe, which is why the pun of axe. And he, he controlled the ground. And Terra is the word for Earth. So Terra, axe, Terax. Marking for Identification Exhibit 526, and what character is shown there in the proof of claim? This is the binary bug. The character that's flying? Yes, he's the one who looks bug-like. Now Exhibit 527, I understand has quite a few characters in it, so what I'd like you to do, just to move this along, is identify the characters in your proof of claim shown in this Exhibit 527 and list the control number where the character appears. Okay, Gorna, which we talked about, was... 0391, Lilith 0392, Torpedo 93, Bullseye 95, Mindwave 96, Goldbug 97, Thunderbolt is also 97, Piranha 98, Skull 99, Xander 400, Powerhouse 401, Condor same 401, Diamondhead 402, Earthshaker 403, Big Wheel 404, Bragadoom 405, Mega Man 406, Sphinx 408, Sage 409, The Corruptor 410, Big Brother 415, Cheshire Cat 415, Edith Harker 417, Quincy Harker 417, Dr. Morte 421, Saffron Deville 423, Dr. Sun is mentioned for the first time in 425, Though not shown, uh, Father Josiah Dawn, 427, Lord Torgo, 429, Horatio Tombs, T-O-O-M-B-S, uh, 431, Hannibal King, 432, Ogun, Azu, Musendo, and Orf Orgy are 436, 
Harold uh, H. Harold, 437. Aurora Rabinowitz, 437. Dr. Sun is finally shown in 439. Juno, 439. Do Domini, uh, 441. Anton Lepesky, 441. Big Brother is mentioned for the first time in 444. And those are the ones that are pre-1977. As far as publication? Yes. Now I'd like you to look at Exhibit 528 and then ask you to identify the characters and the control numbers to which they are shown. Now we've already talked about Nova. I see there's the first one. Right. Nova is uh, 634, Crime Buster 634, Inner Circle 636, The Comet 638, Black Cat 639, the Big Will, 640, White Dragon, 641, Janus, 643, Forever Man, 647, Terax, 649, Jessica Drew, 652, Excalibur, 653, Brother Grimm, 654, Hangman, 655, The Monitors, 656, and Blackout, 657. Now, when did you become editor-in-chief at Marvel? Uh, that's That seems like that could be a new kettle of fish, Jimmy. We're at about 59 minutes. You think that's a good place to uh, call it a day? I think that's a good day? stop. Yes. Yeah, man. Marv Wolfman, editor-in-chief. I think he lasts about three days. It's either <laughs> him went or... through quite a few. It's either him or Len Wein, like, we're editor-in-chief for, like, a weekend or something. Like, when you see that list that went up to Tom DeFalco, like, both of those guys, I think, were editor-in-chiefs the same year, man. It was like that fanboy thing. They get into the game. Then they get the case to the kingdom. Then they're like, I just want to, like make comics i don't want to do this administrative nonsense yeah not only that the um i think earlier in this deposition or in this testimony he talks about the kind of what marvel was like in that 70s period and again going back to when i was doing aphrodisiac i was looking at those 1970s marvel comics and they're wild and i think that's probably what these poor editor-in-chiefs inherited was like so much was happening they expanded so much marvel in that time period that I don't know that they had the editorial staff ready, trained in place, whatever the case may be to control that expansion. And so it's, there's a real energetic sense of chaos in that, in that 1970s Marvel era, which is a fan. I enjoy quite a bit. It's almost like you really can be surprised by what you find in some of those books. But if you're coming on and you're the editor in chief, I can imagine it just being like, no, thanks. And obviously after Len and uh, Marv, Jim Shooter comes in, you can find a lot of conversation with Shooter online where he kind of talks about what he inherited and the lateness of all the books and the cost of the lateness of those books. And just some of the things he had to do to, to write the ship, you know, obviously it's coming from his his voice. So, so uh, it, it makes total cogent sense when, when he says it. But things like limiting certain writers, like, hey, man, you know, you're... You're you're hired. You're you're working on three titles. I'm gonna li limit you to two. You're only getting paid for two anyhow, because you're always late on this other one. You know, if you catch up, you get to you get to uh, maybe write a third title, that kind of thing. Uh, and he got the he got the trains running back on time for the most part, from uh, from what shop owners tell me, and uh, certainly from the horse's mouth. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, you know, and, and he lasts, right? He's there 10 years, Jim Shooter. So definitely it seems like he comes in with a little bit of a different mindset, something a little bit more in line with business requirements, perhaps. Um, 
even though he has that background as, you know, writing comics and, and sort of, I don't know about fandom exactly, but coming up is from a very young time writing, uh, but definitely does seem to show up with the business suit on in that editor, editor in chief role. And uh, as you say, getting the trains running on time, hugely important. Um, you know, I, I think even today, that's a lot of the, uh, the Marvel editorial staff, you know, what they need to do. You know, I, I sometimes joke and say, you know, it's like deadline, deadline, deadline are like the three most important jobs of an editor at Marvel. <laughs> and I, I don't know that that's changed much over the years. Right. And don't have your characters smoke. I, I got <laughs> I to scour your panels to see if there's a cigarette somewhere. No more smoking Nick Furies. No more stogie chomping things or Wolverines. It's tragic. M- makes the uh, poor reprint editor's job uh, exciting. <laughs> they can't. They can't go back and like change that stuff. I can't imagine it. I have no idea. I mean, they, they've certainly reprinted all that stuff. You know, if you grabbed an omnibus, you could you could <laughs> check it out. But uh, yeah, that would be a tall order. Jimmy, after reading uh, these these uh, transcriptions, like I'm looking forward to continuing reading the, the Tomb of Dracula comics. Like I just assumed that Blade was an important character for the tenure of the book, but realizing that he has like a complete arc uh, within the pages of Tomb of Dracula, I think that's a cool thing, man. Because like as a frustrated creative, where there's no direct market or independent publishers uh, at the time. You have an idea, you're a creative person, now you have to figure out how to like shoehorn these ideas into these existing machines, man. And uh, I think that's super cool that that Wolfman was able to explore that. Obviously, he signed his firstborn away or whatever. You know, we'll find out how, how that all works. It's a good example of, you know, I mentioned Steve Bissett talking about how this is like a proto-graphic novel. That would be the that would be your proof, right? These characters have arcs that go years in some cases, uh, you know, throughout like a big chunk of the run of this book where it's, it's one massive story for Blade, uh, you know, from his introduction until he kind of bows out of the book. And I imagine that applied to some of the other characters in the cast. Yeah. And, and you know, so it's, it's human characters uh, for the most part. So like you're not going to need frank drake in an issue of the hulk or anything like that man so you could you could give those characters arcs and at least right now if you're a pretty girl in in tomb of dracula you're toast man just just (laughs) just hold your neck out why don't you because he's turning you that dracula he's got a stable what do you say jimmy you good to go for uh for this week We'll, we'll reconvene this next week in person Yes, sounds good to me. Cool. K-Fabers, like, follow, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Hit the bell. We'll notify you when new vids are available. What's out there, Jimmy? Hulk Grand Design Monster Number 1 will be in stores the end of March. Uh, when you're watching this video, we're less than two weeks out for that. And uh, Hulk Grand Design Madness Number 1 will follow in April. So uh, if you haven't already, tell your store to reserve a copy for you. They can still possibly pre-order those books. And uh, join me on patreon.com slash jimrug. Red Room Trigger Warnings is out in the wild. Issue 1 is out there in stores now, uh, but Issue 2, it's going to be coming out on a monthly basis. Uh, Issue 2, I believe, is like uh, April 6th or 9th, uh, whatever number falls on a Wednesday that month. 
Uh, every issue is completely self-contained. Murder on the dark web for fun and profit is the sort of catchphrase for the Red Room comic books. So uh, that buries no leads for the subject matter of the series. You want to read those comics before they hit paper you can hit up my patreon patreon.com slash ed three bucks for the archive there i have more than 200 pages of red room comics uh, up there as we speak and i put new strips up every tuesday jimmy what else do we have out there subscribe to the cartoonist kayfabe e-newsletter at the links below this video you can also find cartoonist kayfabe t-shirts and merchandise at the links below this video that's another great way to support the cartoonist kayfabe uh, youtube channel uh, without further ado jimmy given those marching orders we'll be on our way Make more comics. And trademark and copyright your own characters. Avoid this confusion. <laughs>